0: how great thou art. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all this morning to worship. Um, Welcome. If this is your first time, we're glad to have you joining us. uh, This gathering of Christ Covenant Fellowship. Uh, If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Tyler Cash. I serve as one of the pastors of this body and uh, would love to meet you after service. Uh, If you have any questions, feel free to ask any of our members. Uh, They'd love to uh, give you more information um, and uh, get you plugged in to what God is doing here with this body of believers that gather under the name Christ Covenant Fellowship. We're in Amos, chapter 2. As we continue our study, the minor prophet Amos. Amos is in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, don't be afraid, ashamed to ask somebody around you to check your table of contents. It is okay. No shame in that. Uh, But we would like for you to look at the text as we As I preach it and as we study it together, if you don't have a Bible, we have some. Um, I'll be preaching from the ESV, but we're in chapter 2, verses 4 through 16 today. Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 16. I'm going to read it for us. We're going to pray and ask God's help as we look at this text. Amos chapter 2, verse 16. 4 reads this Thus says the Lord For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes but their lies have led them astray those after which their fathers walked So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is not in, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift on foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is. And help us to be students of it. Help us to not just be hearers, but to be doers of your word. So Father, would you help us, would you help each and every person who is gathered here today to grow in a knowledge of your love for them, to grow in a knowledge of their depravity and the sinfulness that, and the wrath that we have invoked on ourselves because of our sin, but then help us to see the beauty of the gospel. Christ is the Redeemer, the one who has came to save. Father, what we know not would you teach us, and what we are not would you make us, and what we have not would you give us by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Now last week, we looked at God's judgment on the pagan nations of Amos' time. And while looking at the reality of God's universal judgment on all people, it helps us answer the question, does God care about evil in the world? Like, like, does God care about the things that we see, the bad things that are happening? And what a time in our day and age to have this answer solidified in our vocabulary. Yes, indeed, God does care. Listen to David's words in Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. He says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. God doesn't delight in it. He says, Evil may not dwell with you. He says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. He says, You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man this word abhors means like deeply disgusted like a deep-rooted hatred towards something this tells us that God not only hates the evil acts that are being exercised but he also is disgusted by the individuals exercising evil God will not look past their evilness unless they repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, just as there was judgment in Amos' day, there will be judgment for all the wicked, for, for those who exercise evil. And you may ask, well, what happens until then, right? Like, did they just go about... Their way, they're doing the things that they want to do without any consequence. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So what this tells us is that those who are unrepentant for their sins are literally storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. They're storing up wrath. And the evil we see manifested right now in our world is being recorded and stored up for punishment towards the ones that are committing the evil. So brothers and sisters, let this provide a sense of comfort and clarity as we seek to understand the evil displayed in the world that we live in. But listen, in times like these, we must also remember to look inwardly and take inventory of our own lives, thus asking God to expose our own sinfulness and pleading with him to do the critical work of heart transformation within ourselves see it's really easy to look outside of us especially uh, and look at people and say well hey those are the bad guys those are the ones that are doing the wrong those are the ones that are doing the evil and 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 there they are right I, I can see them especially when the depravity and sinfulness of humanity are wildly on display on the world stage Right, we, we see that, and it is right now in many ways, not denying that, in many ways, in our own land and around the world, but remember what I mentioned last week as we looked at God is most concerned with the purity of his people. God is most concerned with the purity of his people, the church, Christians, those who claim the name of God. Christ. And in Amos, we see this on full display. So after spending some time declaring judgment on Israel's neighbors, the prophet turns his attention to the Israelites themselves. Now He starts here with the southern kingdom of Judah and then moves into the northern kingdom of Israel. We looked at a map last week. If you have a map in your Bible, you can look there. But what he does here is he, he focuses now the rest of his attention, the rest of this prophecy towards God's covenant people. And before we look to the judgment on Judah, I want to briefly just look at how Israel, you might be asking, how did they split into two kingdoms, right? Why do we even have a, a, a northern and a, a southern kingdom? And it's going to help us kind of understand the historical context of the time. So, um, <laughs> Now, we start here in the southern kingdom of Judah. And most of you are familiar with King David, right? David, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. And in chapter 2 of 1 Kings, we read that David dies. So David dies, and he, his son Solomon, that he had had with Bathsheba, takes over as the new king. He succeeds his father. Solomon asked God. He says, God, make me wise. Like, that's what I want. I want to be a wise king. And God did. But God reminded him to obey him. He says, you got to obey. You must do what I tell you to do. But unfortunately, saw Solomon's wisdom and his wealth made him power hungry. He ended up disobeying God. He started to do things his own way and went after his own desires to gain more power and control. And then in 1 Kings eleven nine 9, we read that the Lord was angry with Solomon. Right, he's, he's angry. He's, he, he, you disobeyed me. I, I blessed you. I gave you what you asked for and disobeyed. And then God decides. He says, I will tear the kingdom." This is God's action. God does this. He says, I will tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant, who was Jeroboam. And then in chapter 12 of 1 Kings, we read of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, succeeding his father's reign. So Solomon dies, his son takes over. And then Jeroboam, the servant that God had spoke about, that had said, I'm going to give part of the kingdom to this guy he comes back on the scene comes back he had been hiding because Solomon actually wanted to kill him once Solomon knew of this uh, prophecy that had been given to Jeroboam Jeroboam approaches the now king Rehoboam who was Solomon's son and basically says like hey your dad was wicked your dad was a ruthless king so look man we'll, we'll follow you we'll serve you but just will you go a little easier on us will you not be so cruel will you be a good king he says we'll serve you Rehoboam seeks counsel the wise and older counsel let this be a reminder to you young people they say yeah you should probably do what he asks, because if you do, the people will serve you. They'll love you. You'll display servanthood leadership to them. And this, in turn, will be a blessing. The younger council, his, his, his friends, his peer group, they're like, nah, don't do that. You should be harder on them. You know, come in there with an iron fist and, and, and rule them with an even harder rule than what Your father did. That will gain respect. Wouldn't you know it, right? Rehoboam he follows the counsel of his homies. He's like, yeah, I'll do what they said because, hey, they're they're really wise and smart. Doesn't that get us in trouble? So he goes back. He tells Jeroboam, he says, you know what? I I heard your request, but actually what I'm going to do, I'm going to be harder on you. I've thought about it, but I'm going to be worse than my father. Jeroboam and the Israelites, they don't like this. And they resist Rehoboam's rule, and they, they actually make Jeroboam their king. They, they follow him. He, he kind of leads this revolt. And then Je- uh, Rehoboam flees to Jerusalem, and he sets up his own kingdom with the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So you've got these two tribes in the southern kingdom, and you've got Jeroboam who led, is leading the northern tribe, the ten that he had, and then fast forward about 150 or so years to Amos' time, so we see this kingdom has been split, God's people are severed, they're living in rebellion, and Amos' prophecy and we see that Israel and Judah have continued walking farther and farther away from the God who saved them, who has been there. God reminds them of this here later. But they were persistent in their rebellion. They were also welcoming uh, some pagan practices of worship into their lives and communities. Uh, we'll talk about this later in the weeks to come, but syncretism was pervasive in Amos's day. Uh, syncretism, uh, for those who may not know, is just the blending or mixture of different religions or cultures, right? You just kind of, you blend it all in. It doesn't really matter. We'll just kind of do whatever. We'll flow with the wind and we'll, we'll accept the culture's ideas. We'll accept pagan religions and do the things God has told us not to do. There's much to be said about that in our time, and once again, we will focus on that more as the text speaks specifically to that in the weeks to come. But the key point to remember here is that these were God's people. God had revealed himself to them. He had entered a covenant with these people. He had called them to something different. He called them to a different way to worship. A different way to live, a different way to engage with one another and their world around them, their neighbors. Called them to live a different lifestyle. They rejected him, they rebelled. While God judges all the nations, we see here that those whom God has revealed himself to, those whom he has called, are called to live differently. They're called to a higher standard. They're beckoned to live a life that is worthy of the calling to which they have been called. Those who rebel God's ways will be held accountable. This isn't just an Old Testament principle, right? Uh, Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 12 might be familiar with this. Uh, it says, and, and that servant, so he's, he's talking about uh, these, the, these servants who had been left and entrusted with different things from their master, and he speaks here in 47, he says, the servant who knew his master's will, so, so he was aware, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. She calls us to pause and think. My being faithful with what I've been given. My being faithful with the knowledge that has been revealed. The knowledge of the gift of salvation in Christ is it producing the required obedience that God said is required? Now we know that. We will not reach perfection on this side of eternity. It is only through Christ. But brothers and sisters, we are called to make war on sin. As the Puritan John Owen once said, right? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It will destroy you. As we look at verses 4 through 16 of chapter 2, We're going to see two major categories of Judah and Israel's sins, all right? Just broke them down into two major categories. One, the rejection of God's word. They reject God's word. And then two, we just see the self-indulgence. Self-indulgence that is rampant. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. We're going to see this attention given to Judah, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have, look at these words, rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. It says, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So we pause here and we see that Judah's main offense here is a rejection of God's Word. They've rejected it. They have turned away from God's divine revelation to them. He says they have rejected the law. Rejected the law of the Lord. This means the Word of God here. What they had in their time. They cheapened it. The lack of respect for it. They disregarded God's Word as pointless or irrelevant. I don't, I don't need God's word daily. I don't need it. They didn't keep his statues. They they didn't do what it says to do. And you don't know what it says to do if you're not in it. This is true for many today, right? I mean, we live in a world where many churches reject God's word consistently. You got some saying to unhitch the Old Testament. And, you know, we, we don't need that part. We're just... We'll just stay away from there. You got some that are saying that the Bible, uh, it's not really the, the, the word of God, you know. You kind of just interpret it however you want. and It's, it's just the guide for us today to live better lives, and uh, that's a lie. Some say it verbally, uh, blatantly. Some just do it in practice, right? Their services and sermons have a little focus on God's word. They lean more on entertainment and self-help talks. It's all about entertaining, right? Let's entertain the people. Let's give them what they want, not what they need. As Martin Lloyd Jones once said, right, I never let the patient write the prescription. He was a doctor before he was a preacher. We need the Bible, we need God's word. We need it preached faithfully. We need it read corporately. But we also need to check our own lives individually. It's not just corporately. It's Not just what we're doing here, when we gather, you're only opening God's word on Sunday mornings, and there's a problem. and I love you enough to tell you that you must be students of the word. You must read, you must meditate on the scriptures daily. It doesn't mean you need to read uh, the, the Bible from front to back in a year, and I, I know many get caught up in Bible reading plans, and I'm not saying that they are bad, but In times of despair, in times of distance, even meditate on one or two verses. Meditate on the scripture. Pray the scriptures. And then after we ask how much time am I given, then we have to ask ourselves, am I obeying? Am I a doer of the word? It's it's, it's one thing to hear. My kids, right? Do it all the time. They hear what I say and they'll say, huh? Now you know what I said. You just don't want to do what I said. Isn't that true for all of us? Cherry pick. Pick and choose what we like, apply it how we want. The question we must ponder is what is my attitude towards the Bible? is not just a question for you, it's a question for me. Do I treat it as the true written word of God? Am I obeying God's word in so much as it depends on me? What I am responsible to do? And brothers and sisters, those are tough questions that are worth answering. Amos moves on to Israel in verse 6 here. He says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. We see the same formula here, right? Remember, three transgressions and four is not uh, three or four or seven. Uh, It's a proverbial kind of statement that just really means like sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. You you just keep on sinning. It's three, then it's four, then it's four hundred. You just keep doing the same thing. And then Amos first names Israel's sins of self-indulgence here. And first we see self-indulgence materially. They're letting their desires control them. They're letting their desires captivate them. Whatever has your attention Will have your heart. Whatever has your attention will captivate you. That's why it is important that we meditate on God's word and Christ. He says, They sell the righteous for silver. He says, and the needy for a pair of sandals those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted Uh, this term here selling the righteous for silver refers to corrupt judges who were perverting the justice system for bribes so the one that was being charged, or the one that was, uh, had maybe committed a crime, they, they were not letting justice prevail. They were not upholding the law. They were taking the, the fate of the one accused, was in the hands not of the law, but rather in the hands of the highest bidder. They were corrupt. The selling of the needy for a pair of sandals suggests the intense pettiness. These guys were petty. These people were petty. They were enslaving those who could not pay small debts that were worth, what, a pair of sandals. Rich would kind of give loans to people they knew that couldn't pay them back. So when they couldn't pay them back, they would then sell them for more than the loan. It would enslave the people. It was a corrupt system. And then in verse 7 we read, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. Uh, This highlights really the oppression of the lower class for self-preservation. They wanted self-preservation. They wanted promotion within themselves. And they would step on the heads of those that they needed to. Whatever they needed to do to get ahead. At whatever cost. And then further, the accusation that they were turning aside the way of the afflicted reveals intentional opposition to the needy. Once again, we will see that God cares about justice. God cares about justice His way. See, God doesn't show partiality. We'll get into that later. There's a standard to which... He's called us all to. These people have become utterly careless for the needs of others, the cares of others, and they have cast them aside for their own gain. Remember the introduction message we talked about, uh, kind of the burden of prosperity, and how we see this transpire. Through this story. And man, how often times of prosperity for us, especially in our culture, it leads to a lack of humility, lack of dependence on God. My kingdom is built, the American dream. And we start to Trust more in our own ways rather than God's ways. Here we see this on full display. They've let the burden of prosperity corrupt them. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that we would not be so quick to do so. Second, we see this self indulgence played out sexually. This is a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. Uh, this speaks of acts of prostitution, uh, possibly ceremonial prostitution in order uh, they were worshiping some other gods and there were once again, there were all sorts of things that were being uh, came, they were coming into picture here. We see here that God despises sexual sin. God hates sin. Sexual sin. He says his name is profaned when it happens. This is a serious indictment. Profane means to treat something that is sacred with abuse, irreverence, or contempt. To kind of desecrate the holy name of God. Brothers and sisters, the same is true today about sexual sin. It profanes the name of God. Scripture speaks a lot to it, and that's a, another sermon for another day. But we cannot say we love God if we do not respect and honor God's design. And that's applied in many different ways in many different lives. Indictment continues as we read in verse 8 that they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So not only are they engaging in deplorable sexual sin, they were using garments that were taken as pledges for loans to the poor. They were defiling justice, God's law. Read, they were getting drunk in the holy place of worship. It says, house of their God, they drink wine. I mean, they were just doing whatever they wanted. They were rampantly rebelling against God. It was pervasive. And I just want to quickly take note here that the abuse of alcohol and sexual sin are closely connected. Just leave that there. It's a whole sermon, but I encourage for any of you who struggle with sexual sin to abstain from alcohol. Stay far away at all costs. Move on to verses 9 through 11. Here God reminds his people of His kindness, His provision, His care over their lives. Brothers and sisters, here we see the the sovereignty, the kindness, the provision of our God just on on full display here. Look at verse 9. He says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oak. So it wasn't a chump. Since I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. I, I got the whole thing. I did this. So he's, he's reminding them of their rebellion. Now he's reminding them here of, listen, do you not remember who I am and how I have cared for you? How I've protected you, how I've provided for you. Here, this is a reference of the Lord driving out the Amorites, who were the uh, pre conquest inhabitants of Canaan. Numbers uh, 21 tells us, right, then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But their king said, nope, you're not coming through here. He says in verse 23, but Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel, right? So he's got this army and he's going against Israel here. He fought. And then Numbers 21, 24 tells us that Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the the Arn to the Jabbok as far as to the Ammonites, to the border of the Ammonites was strong. Basically, God says, I did this. I saved you. He said, you couldn't do that on your own. I mean, isn't that our story? Where would we be without God? Where would you be? I know where I would be. It's not here. I lived that life for many years. Continuing down memory lane, God reminds the Israelites of their redemption from Egypt. We're probably all pretty familiar with that story. The Lord guided them through the wilderness because of what? Because they were awesome? Because they were great children? No. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? They were rebellious during that time, but God made a promise to them. If you've been... Walking through Genesis with us on our Wednesday night studies, you've seen just God's faithfulness over and over again. God makes the promise. We mess it up. He continues to provide because he is a kind and loving father. And he says here in verse 10, he reminds him, he says, Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. We all now know what the land of the Amorite is. And God is just highlighting his grace here. If you recall, right? The Israelites were under bondage and slavery to Egypt. And he rescued them, he, he drew them out, saved them. They, they couldn't save themselves. And not only did he save them, he led them for 40 years as they complained and rebelled against him. The one that just saved you, you just turn around. Rebel against them. Why did God continue to do this? I just said it. Because of his covenant love. Because of his love towards his people. God will not go back on his covenant. God will not go back on his promises. And he was reminding them here again. Then he speaks of his further providence over Israel. He mentions two things here. He says, I gave you prophets and I gave the law of the Nazarite. Verse 11, right, he says, And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, (laughs) O Israel, declares the Lord? So God, in his kindness, raises up prophets to speak to the people and to help to guide and teach them. To warn them, Of their wickedness. Remember, we talked about this, right? The the prophets were were an act of kindness to God, basically saying, like, hey, you you might want to stop doing what you're doing. This is to come if you don't. He says, You established them as a means of revelation. That was even in direct contrast to the the, the pagan worship that was happening during their day. God's word was given to the prophet, then it was declared to the people. He also gave the law of the Nazarites, right? And what they would do is they would take a strict vow to abstain from alcohol. They would abstain from also touching dead bodies. I I don't even know why that would be a hard one to do. Um, But then also from cutting their hair. No head jokes. Um, If you remember Samson, Samson was a Nazarite. Remember when he cut his hair, he lost his strength. He lost his strength because he had taken a vow. said, I I will obey the vow that I have taken. And yes, I'm still strong. All right? For y'all thinking I'm not a Nazarene. Then he asks, "Is it not indeed so?" Basically it's a rhetorical question, right? Like didn't that just happen? Didn't I do these things for you? Like, like, am I lying? Did I not provide? Did I not care for you, my people? Did I not do what I said I would do? I mean, can you imagine here, right, the, the, the feeling that was probably taking over the people, the emotions that were... Being drawn out as they heard and were reminded of this God, their God. they' were reminded of the deliverance and they couldn't deny it. They're reminded of the provision, the kindness, the grace that was. Displayed. I, I wonder what they were thinking. Was it conviction? Was it sadness? And then in verse 12, we see even more rebellion towards the gifts that God had just given them, or just mentioned that he had given them. I mean, it's so like us, right? We, we mess up the good things God gives us. We mess it up. Left to our own devices, we will mess it up every time. He says in verse 12, right, he says, you made the Nazarites drink wine. He says you commanded the prophets saying you shall not prophesy. So they've attempted to corrupt the Nazarites with alcohol. Something they weren't, so the Nazarites, they've they've taken this vow, I'm not going to drink alcohol, and they're tempting them. Just come on. Just, just do it. Don't be so uptight. You know, loosen up a little bit. Disobey God. I know you have convictions, but hey, come on. Just do it this once. And then they tell the, the prophets, right, like, no, nah, nah, we don't want to hear you. We don't want to hear your prophecy. We don't really want to hear what God has to say. So we're going to tell you to stop saying it. I mean, they literally spit in the face of God. God says here, you're, I gave you gifts for your good. And they say, no thanks, we don't want them. Once again, this is the God who has delivered them out of Egypt. delivered them, guided them, protected them. Maybe you're the one that tempts others to break vows they have made to God. Maybe you're the one that's encouraging others to move away from God's word and trust their own heart. All right? Cliché, right? Follow your heart. No, no, no. Don't follow your heart. Your heart is desperately wicked. Wicked. And only through Christ is it made new. Maybe you don't want to hear those speaking hard truths as the prophets did during their time. You know, there's so many that just want people affirming their actions. Just want You affirmation. Affirmation that... that you know God still loves me when when I'm continuing in rebellion and and I'm just going to continue down this way and you know God's okay with that right now it's just you know a stage of my life that I'm in so I'm just going to keep doing it God says that's not true maybe you're someone that wants to to be comfortable in your sin like I wish they would just stop talking about it, right? Every time, you know, that, that, that preacher is just always talking about you know, sin and how we need to, to, to fight it and how sin will corrupt. You know, my friends, the, the ones that really love me, they, they continue to, to, to help push me and guide me and, and hold me accountable. Maybe you just like to be coddled. I'll just stay here, just do things my way, you know, just want somebody to rub my back and make me feel good. and Just want to be happy, right? Paul speaks of this in 2 Timothy 4, 3, right? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The things they want. They'll, they'll listen. They'll, and how easy is it today, right? With that phone. With the, um, the access we have to so many teachers and preachers and books. And there's a lot of good things out, of, out there. But there are also a lot of unhelpful things. then we see that judgment is coming because of their rebellion. Verse 13 begins with the warning, Behold. This word demands the hearer's attention for the punishment that is to come. He says, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. First in verse 13, God will press down the people like a cart presses down under the weight of sheaves, uh, which this just means they're bundles of something. It, it means something heavy pressing down. It's an agricultural image that the uh, pressing, the weight of God's judgment, basically saying this is heavy and it's real. It will happen. And then next, the prophet provides a sevenfold summary of the pervasive nature of the coming destruction. And then he shows that no human resources that they have relied on will save them. Look at what he goes through here. Look, 14, right? He says, flight shall perish from the swift. Basically, he says here that the swift will not be able to escape. Uh, Then he goes on, he says, the strong shall not retain his strength. The strong will be made weak. Then he says, nor shall the mighty save his life. So the mighty one, they, they won't be able to save themselves. No matter how strong, no matter how mighty they are says the mighty, nor shall the mighty save his life. Then he says he who handles the bow shall not stand. Uh, the bowman will not stand means that they, they will die in battle. This is to tell what is to come here. They think their armies are strong. They think they are strong. They think they are wise. But they will perish. Then he says, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Swift foot, right? They're, they're fast. They, and no matter how fast you are, you're not going to escape. Then he says that nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. The rider on the horse who is faster than those on foot will not even be able to deliver himself. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Basically, what he says here is that even the bravest, the bravest of the brave, the strongest of the strong, the mightiest warrior will flee away with nothing. He says naked here. This kind of means that. Probably will be stripped of his armor, will run away, scouring, cowering in fear. Then he says, This declares the Lord, it is the Lord who will do this. I mean, the scene described in these verses is one of utter turmoil and chaos as the Lord presses down the nation in judgment. He says, no one will escape the coming wrath, which is due because of the rampant rebellion against God. He says, you've done this. Now judgment will come. He says, the human abilities that have seemingly gotten them so far in life are useless they are useless all the things that you're you're banking on and they're useless the day of judgment brothers and sisters that is still the state of humanity today see our strength our abilities our good works even are useless apart from Christ. There's nothing that we can do to escape the judgment that we are due. See, you can't miss this, right? The Israelites, they needed a Savior. They needed a Savior. They needed a Redeemer. That's what all of Scripture is about. Spoiler alert. It's all about Jesus the Redeemer. The Father's plan of salvation. Christ's work of salvation. And the Holy Spirit working to seal those. To carry us home to glory. See, Scripture says that humanity needs someone to rescue them. We need someone to rescue us from the judgment, the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. We are all personally guilty. If you don't know that, let me remind you. Uh, Paul reminds Romans in chapter 3. He says, and what then are we Jews any better? No, not at all. He says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Saying that those apart from Christ that are banking on their ethnicity, their good works, their deed, whatever, they're guilty apart from Christ. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Listen, that is an indictment on us all. We are guilty. But later, he remembers. Reminds us, because we are guilty, we deserve death. Romans 6.23, right? For the wages of sin is what? Death. See, we have earned it. Our wages. If you go to work, which you should, you get a wage for your work. You earn it because of our sin we have earned death we deserve it but praise god he doesn't stop there amen but the free gift of god is what eternal life in christ jesus our lord not in what you can do not in your church attendance or your good deeds towards others. But in Christ. It is those that have been found in Christ. See, from one point in history to another, we are reminded that we need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. And in God's kindness, He sent a savior jesus christ to die the death that we deserve so we get the life we don't deserve now and forevermore praise be to god and brothers and sisters let the reality of the deserved judgment bear weight on the beauty of the grace of god displayed through the work of christ on our behalf and May that compel us as a church to joyful obedience as we wait for the return of our king. We don't get what we deserve. Christ did. And now, because of him, there's a righteousness that is imputed, given to us, outside of us, something we can't earn. because of that God has set his love on each one of his children let us be a people joyfully submit and obey kindness the provision and the care of our God let's pray Father God thank you so much for Christ For the work that was done. As Christ stood in our stead, took the punishment we deserve, so we get the life that we don't deserve. Father, would you help us to obey your word? Would you help us to be obedient servants? And followers of Christ, making much of Christ, never taking uh, the glory for ourselves, but always proclaiming the glory of Christ, proclaiming that it is him who works in us. Father, thank you for this time. Transform us, renew us, help us to leave different than we walked in. By your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.